Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. On today's podcast, we'll bring you a special episode, part of our recurring series, Ask the Mayo Mom, hosted by Dr. Angela Madke, a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic's Children's Center. Dr. Madke leads the discussion with Mayo Clinic experts and takes questions from listeners. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Angela Mackey. I'm a pediatrician at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota, and host of this show about pediatric health topics. Today, we're going to be talking about two different areas of growth and nutrition in children that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. The first area is called failure to thrive or when a child doesn't gain weight or grow well. Joining us for this discussion is Dr. Dana Steen, a pediatric gastroenterologist and expert in pediatric clinical nutrition. Dr. Steen is also the Director of Pediatric Nutrition at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. The second area we're going to be discussing today is called fatty liver disease in children. This occurs when too much fat is stored in the liver and can cause problems for the liver's normal functioning. Dr. Sarah Hassan will be joining us for this discussion. Dr. Hassan is also a pediatric gastroenterologist at Mayo Clinic Children's Center and also an expert in hepatology and liver transplantation. So Dr. Dr. Hassan and Dr. Steen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Mm-hmm. This is gonna be a great discussion. I, I think, especially as a primary care provider, these are things that we, we look to a lot and I look to you guys to help me with when these concerns do come up. So. Dr. Steen, let's start by talking about growth in children. Parents might be familiar with growth charts because we use them at almost every well-child visit and other visits, but what, what, are, um, what are growth charts? Why are they important to us and, and what do they tell us? So, great question. Growth charts are really um, used to track a child's weight and height. Um, weight and height in children are, are almost like an, another vital sign. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be used to compare your child's weight, height, and head circumference to children of the same age and gender. And they also provide a really good visual guide to compare a child's current growth measurements to their previous ones. So by evaluating a child's growth over time, the data points can provide an early warning sign that a child has a medical problem, but they also tell us if a child is growing appropriately, which provides some reassurance that that the child is healthy and doing well. Um, And so they can also tell us if the child is growing proportionally. So when we look at comparisons from their weight to their height, we can tell if that looks appropriate also. So you mentioned weight, height or length, um, and then a comparison. Are there other growth charts that are useful um, in looking at their growth and their overall health? Yeah, so in children that are um, between birth and two years of age, we use four main growth charts, the weight chart, the height or length chart, the weight for length chart, and then the head circumference chart. And all four of those play a role in evaluating a child's growth and nutritional status. Um, In older children and adolescents, so those who are two to 20 years of age, we use three growth charts. We use the weight height and the BMI chart. And the BMI or body mass index chart also tells us a little bit more about if that child is um, has a proportional weight and height. Okay. So there are a lot of little lines on these growth charts that represent percentiles, but what do these percentiles really mean? Yep. So the percentiles are numbers that help compare your child's measurements to other children who are the same age and gender as your child. So An example, a child whose weight is at the 10th percentile, it basically means that out of an average of 100 children, your child's same age, 
Um, if a child's at the 10th percentile for height, it means approximately 90 patients or children would be taller than your child and 10 would be shorter than your child. The same goes for the weight. Um, it is very appropriate and sometimes healthy if uh, a child is at the fifth percentile. And it's also healthy if a child's at the 95th percentile because that might be their normal, genetic normal. Um, and so we wanna make sure that those percentiles stay similar, not exactly the same as a child gets older and older. So if those percentiles aren't staying similar, what does that tell us and, and, and what concerns does that raise? So there's a lot of variability when we look at the exact numbers and girl charts were originally built to be on paper. When you look at the growth charts, there are major percentile lines, and those are the darker lines on that growth chart. We now have the luxury of plotting children on the growth charts and using and getting an electronic um, number or specific percentile. So we might see that a patient falls at the 47th percentile, but really what we should be looking at is generally is the child staying around or between those major percentile lines. So if a child changes from the 25th even to sometimes the 45th percentile, as long as that fluctuation appears pretty normal and that trend remains normal, that can actually be very healthy. Yeah, absolutely. So if should parents be concerned though if there's kind of larger variations, larger fluctuations in either weight gain or weight decrease or with their height and, and BMI as well? Great question. So I always recommend if, patient, if parents have concerns about their child's growth um, and, and what their growth charts look like. They should talk to their provider about that. Really, the growth charts tell a story. And when we see fluctuations in their weight or their height percentiles, if they are very large increases or decreases in percentiles, then yes, we need to investigate further um, and ask specific questions. And, can, and the important piece is, can we figure out why that's happening? Um, that may mean that a child was on a medication that could have increased their appetite or increased their weight, but the same goes true when they're on medications that decrease their appetite. And so what we're lo really looking at is what is the cause for those changes, um, not necessarily just the changes themselves. Okay. Um, are there like specific disorders or children who have certain syndromes um, that they may be not following the normal trends of uh, the WHO or the CDC growth charts? Mm -hmm. Are there special growth charts for, for these children so we can monitor their growth in a normal, predictable sort of way? Absolutely. So typically in, in children who are zero to two years of age, we use the WHO or the WHO growth charts. Mm -hmm. Um, in older children, two to 20 years of age, we use the CDC growth charts. And those growth charts were basically built um, looking at healthy growth for children um, in optimal situations without medical issues. But we know that there are children that, that do have some medical issues or genetic anomalies that are going to affect their growth. And in those children, when possible, when we have the data available, we do use growth charts that are specific to those children. So there's specific growth charts for children that have cerebral palsy, and there are multiple growth charts for children with cerebral palsy, depending on what their gross motor skills are, what their gross motor capabilities are, such as if they walk versus if they're in a wheelchair um, versus if they're tube fed. Um, we also have specific growth charts for patients that have trisomy 21 and some other genetic anomalies. And it's, it's most important that we use the appropriate growth chart for those children so we can get a good snapshot of, of what that growth trend really looks like.
So let's move on to talk about what what parents should look for if your child is not growing well or not gaining weight well because i mean if your visits are kind of spread out and and you see your child every day sometimes you don't notice um kind of subtle changes and so we want to give families some tools but also not not scare them that they need to be you know weighing their child every day absolutely that's really what the well child visits are set up for um you know earlier on in life in that first year of life there are multiple uh visits at the physician's office um, or at a pro medical provider's office, so that the weights and the heights can be trended. That's the most important time in life for children to be growing appropriately, because they should be growing the fastest at that stage. As children get older, their weight gain and height gain, that velocity slows down, and those visits are spaced out. And actually, it's, it works out nicely because we shouldn't, you're right, shouldn't have, be having to check a child's weight or height on a daily or even weekly basis once they get older. Mm -hmm. What's important is to go to those well-child appointments, make sure the child's growth is still following appropriately on their charts. If there are any concerns, yes, sometimes we do need to investigate further um, and ask specific questions. The most important piece when we see abnormalities on the growth chart, when there are concerns about a child's growth, is that we ask the right questions and find out why that is happening. And so that can help us identify why those changes are occurring. Um, but, and sometimes we just need a sooner um, weight or data check, um, get a new weight or a new height before that next weight check, just to make sure that trend is appropriate. I sometimes say kids grow in stair steps. And when we get a lot of data points, we sometimes see a little bit of a flattening and then a bump up in their weight or their height. And so sometimes just waiting a little bit longer can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. There are other kids that have reasons for not growing as typically or as appropriately, such as they have a decrease in their calorie intake. And that can happen for a host of reasons. And it's important that we have those clinic visits to talk with our medical provider to find out if they are taking fewer calories than they need and why that may be. Sometimes children, I mean, it's really common that children are picky eaters, but when they're so picky to the point mm -hmm. that they're not taking in enough calories, that's when it gets concerning. Mm -hmm. um, and there's other medical um, issues which can contribute to children needing more calories. And so in older patients, more commonly, if they develop something called inflammatory bowel disease or inflammation in their bowel, there's malabsorption or a higher need for calories, we find that sometimes those children may not be gaining weight at the rate that they previously were. And we'll typically see that on the growth chart, sometimes even before they present with symptoms, but that's pretty rare. Usually there are other symptoms that are going along with those changes in their, um, their weight and height trends. Is there any specific sign that a family uh, would see first um, if there was a trend that was concerning um, that would kind of give them an idea to, to raise their concerns to their primary care provider? Well, it depends on the cause for that, that change in their growth pattern. Okay. Um, and so I would say children who are not getting enough calories sometimes have a, a dramatic decrease in their energy. Um, depending on the cause, sometimes they have other symptoms, not just a decrease in energy, which can be one piece, um, but, but also have things like new onset of abdominal pain or new onset diarrhea or recurrent vomiting, things that are causing them to not keep and absorb the calories in their intestinal tract 
that they need to be there for calorie absorption and for appropriate growth. Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned the term failure to, to thrive or failure to gain weight. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that? It's it's a it's a medical term that we use, and it means it means something to us. But to families, what does that really mean? Yeah. So in medicine, um, failure to thrive is a term that is sometimes used, um, and it's basically used to describe a child who is either not gaining weight well or maybe not growing in height well. Um, the most common reason for failure to thrive is that a child is not getting enough calories. Um, that can be due to so many different reasons. We talked about patients not eating enough, and that can be because of medications or um, a very limited diet for, for various reasons, uh, but also can be due to other issues, like it's uncomfortable to swallow food, such as you know, in, in something called eosinophilic esophagitis. Um, and sometimes those, um, you know, symptoms are subtle and sometimes kids are, are too young to actually say what that symptom is. And we find that with decreased oral intake um, and, and calorie intake, the child's weight gain slows down um, and doesn't stay at that normal trend. If ch- children are not getting enough calories or have an increase in calorie needs, typically see, we see the weight trend uh, trending down first. Um, before the height trend. And so we look at all of the trends and all of the growth charts to try to put the pieces together and identify specifically what's going on in that child. It's really, the growth charts are very individualized. And so we have to look at them and analyze them in the context of what's going on with that child. Um, we also know that some children don't have enough food at home. And, um, you know, that's, that's a problem for patients and families. And pediatricians and providers need to help identify if that's also what's going on at home. Um, I think whenever parents have a concern, it's important to talk about the growth charts with your provider and talk about, you know, where the concerns are and if there is a concern and start getting more of a history and asking those questions about what your child is eating, how much they're eating, and if that's changed in the last month, two months, or even the last year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what would that evaluation look like for families um, and um, once maybe their provider has brought up concerns about their child's growth pattern is really changed from previous um, and is, is raising concerns for them and who should really be involved in that evaluation process? So if, if a child gets a diagnosis of failure to thrive or if that's a concern from their provider, um, it, it really starts with their provider and what the history and the physical exam findings are. Um, so that can start to surface what the cause of those changes in their growth patterns may be. Um, in, I would say, less common cases, we identify that a child may have an issue that is a GI issue, like absorption issues. And so then they may be referred to a gastroenterologist, such as myself or Dr. Hassan. Um, Other children, um, a provider based on the history and the physical exam may be more concerned about an endocrine issue and they may refer them to an endocrinologist. Um, Less commonly do patients need to see um, someone like a cardiologist or nephrologist, but we also have to think about their heart and their kidneys and everything else, all of, all of the organs in their body, which are utilizing calories um, and finding out if there's anything, you know, that can be identified that is a cause for that 
but sometimes the providers, based on their history in the physical exam, start with a workup in the office and may get some laboratory studies, um, may evaluate for something called celiac disease, which is not an uncommon diagnosis and is essentially a gluten allergy. And so they can get some of those basic labs and, um, and that physical exam will help guide the workup if they need it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, this has been really, really um, interesting and helpful, but I want to move on to asking Dr. Hassan about really the opposite um, or the other end of the spectrum. Um, Dr. Hassan, I mentioned you're a hepatologist. What does that mean? That's a great question. A hepatologist is a doctor who specializes in the care of the liver and the bile duct or the biliary tree. So we really focus all our attention on how to keep the liver healthy, how to keep the bile ducts healthy, and how to make sure that the patient overall is growing and developing well. We also take care of certain cases when patients have a failing liver or the liver isn't really working well and it needs to get a transplant. We help the patient and the family trying to understand what's going on, keep the patient as healthy as possible for a potential transplant, walk through the transplant with our transplant team, and then take care of the patient after he receives the transplant, making sure that the liver stays healthy and it grows with the patient, and then we have a happy, happy story. Yeah, and as um, Dr. Steen had mentioned, is you guys also do some general pediatric gastroenterology as well, Absolutely. a little bit as well. Okay, as long as, as, as well as our, um, your other partners at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. All right, so hepatology, you're a liver expert. What does the liver do? It seems like it's this nebulous organ that we sometimes wonder what its role is. It is probably my favorite organ. Okay, obviously, <laughs> yes. But it's such a terrific organ. It's actually one of the largest organs, the solid organs we have in our body, if not the largest. Um, it lies right, right around on our right side and it has so many functions. You know, it uh, deals with energy, it stores sugars, it stores glucoses and stores fat. Um, it helps us with our metabolism. It detoxifies everything that we see in our body and make sure that our brains remain healthy and only get the nutrition they need and don't see any trash. Um, it really makes sure that the blood is not too thick or too thin. It helps make sure that there's no clotting disorders. So it really does a lot. Everything that we breathe, we eat, um, we, anything that's come into us has to be filtered and has to go through the liver first. So Your bodies are truly amazing, aren't they? Amazing. Sorry. Yeah. No, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I had a patient, I was telling Dr. Steen about it. I had a patient that told me, well, the body's like the Beyonce of the liver, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely. It that, is. <laughs> that, that your patient is right on. Absolutely. Spot on. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So I mentioned fatty liver disease when we talked about um, in the introduction. Um, what is fatty liver disease? So fatty liver disease um, is essentially the accumulation of fat droplets inside our liver. And we all have a little bit of fat in our liver, and I think that's normal. It's this abnormal accumulation that's happening. As I mentioned, the liver stores energy. So if we're seeing much more energy intake, the liver kind of volunteers and decides to store this extra fat accumulation, not where we see it, you know, in the cheeks and the belly, but also inside the liver. Once this becomes too much, we have extra fat that's disrupting the liver cells and that's kind of making them angry. We have fatty liver disease. Okay. It, Sorry, um, you were saying? No, no, go ahead. It's hard on Zoom. I, I <laughs> no, go ahead. Please finish. No, I was going to say that it's, um, it's somewhat difficult because it's 
acts like um, it has a me the medical term for it is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And the reason why it's called non-alcoholic is because on a, on a biopsy, if you're able to look at it, it acts exactly as if you've been drinking. When our children have, or our teenagers have, have not been drinking, but the effect is the same. The fat effect is the same. Okay. So if our children aren't drinking and they're not alcoholics, what's the cause of, of fatty liver disease in children? It's, that's a great question. It is this abnormal accumulation of, of fat that's happening. And what we see is that we're getting a lot more injury because of this abnormal accumulation. And once the liver gets injured, it's, it's heading towards a not so pleasant path. And this is where we come in to try to remedy it and nip it in the bud if you want. Okay. Um, does, um, are there symptoms that children can, can present with or teens, um, or is it something that maybe is a longer process that might cause more symptoms for them later in life? Um, most of the time, it's, we don't really have symptoms. And in fact, this is one of the main reasons why the American Academy of Pediatrics started instituting liver testing uh, to really screen for that condition because it can be silent. And we tend to screen more often in kids who are a little bit overweight or who are higher on their growth chart with an elevated BMI, just because we know that there is this tendency to, to increase the fat accumulation. Um, sometimes if it's really later on and we haven't caught them early enough or they haven't presented to medical attention, we can start seeing some signs and symptoms that the liver hasn't, isn't really working the best way it should. We can start noticing some yellowness in the skin, excessive bruising on the skin, uh, yellowing in the eye, um, and just kind of those symptoms that are telling us that the liver is calling for attention. Okay. So the screening seems like it's important. What, what would happen if, if this isn't caught early? What would be the long-term consequences of too much fatty accumulation in the liver cells? So too much fatty accumulation disrupts the general architecture of the liver. So if you can imagine a couple of liver cells that are trying to communicate and now there's a whole lot of fat in between them, they're going to get irritated. And, but the body is really smart, right? The body's trying to rectify this and it starts laying down, you know, like these, these fiber cables, if you want. And then we, unfortunately, even though it's, it has the best intentions, it's actually harming itself. And this is the beginning of what we call fibrosis. Too much fibrosis can lead to cirrhosis. Cirrhosis is this when the liver gets shrunken because there's so much fiber and very little cells and the liver is not able to do what it's supposed to. And then we, we see a myriad of symptoms that are happening. We can, um, and the liver can even go to failure. Um, and this is when we start thinking, do we, how can we remedy this? And do we even need a new liver at this point? Okay, so it seems like it's a really serious disease and that's why screening is so important. Absolutely. Um, what age are, should pediatricians be screening or when, when should families, if, if, they're, if this is not being brought up to them at well-child visits, when should they ask about this? I think anytime that they notice that um, there's a little bit of fat deposition around the waist, um, there's patterns of excessive eating, or um, there's any yellowness of the skin. If this is part of the family, we know that there are some genes that can predispose to fatty liver as well. We know that there are some, uh, some behaviors, some uh, foods, some, some other things that are happening. So definitely talk with your, uh, with your provider, talk with your pediatrician, and screening should begin anywhere between 10 and 11. And really want your liver enzymes, which are just kind of those markers that tell us if the liver is healthy or not, to be around 20s. So anytime that these are doubled or tripled, this should raise an eyebrow and start the discussion for sure. 
the other thing that I want to mention is sometimes we have kiddos who are, you know, a little overweight or have an increased BMI and have these elevation in their liver tests that would point out to fatty liver. But it's really important not to forget the other, the other diseases or other genetic disorders that can present in the same fashion, kind of masquerading under fatty, fatty liver disease, but really it's something else that we can treat. And this is where we also come in. We screen for these other tests. We screen for these infections, for these genetic disorders, for these metabolic things. Because although quite rare, we see them a lot in our clinic. Um, and so we need to take care of them before there's enough injury to the liver. And we're fortunate enough that we're catching them way before they're 18, you know? So we can really, really improve on that, on the liver health way early on and then set them up for success later in life. Yeah, well said. So in primary care, I'm, I'm doing screening on patients based on risk factors, I, meaning I'm ordering the blood test of the liver enzymes you talked about. If they're elevated, um, what would be the next steps that the families uh, would expect for the evaluation? I think if they're persistently elevated, I think it's reasonable to send them to a hepatologist because that's when the real workup begins. Uh, the, the screening is so important. What the pediatrician does is so important because it's the first step towards starting this discussion and starting the treatment. And then once we are here, once we are seen by the hepatologist, this is where we try to check, is there anything else that might be going on? Is this some sort of an infection that's pretending to be fatty liver, but not it. And so we screen for all of these things, but then at the same time, we try to implement some things to help with help the liver get healthy. And it may sound easy, but dietary modifications and exercise actually help a lot. And just thinking about it, we want, we have these fat droplets that are inside the liver that are bothering the liver. So one, we need to make sure that we're not increasing the size of the fat droplets. So by improving our diet, we actually are not increasing that, right? And by exercising, we wake up our muscles and these muscles will eat up this fat that's inside the liver and outside the liver and make sure that the liver is happy. So these small little changes, of course, we don't expect them to lose 30 pounds, right? We, we set up a certain realistic number with the family, we do small changes, small tweaks so that the entire family feels a little healthier without really changing the lifestyle and like making them run back you know what i mean so it's not really really difficult to do but it's enough for the liver to sense the change and already be on demand okay so you would be doing some more lab tests um for the evaluation would you be doing any imaging like ultrasounds or Absolutely. mris or things like along those lines absolutely so okay. um the the first step typically would include uh, getting an ultrasound assessing what size is the liver okay. but also assessing how are the bile ducts? Are they healthy? Do we have any masses? Anything that's compressing them? Anything that's, you know, that looks, that looks off? And if, and then we, we check it. And then within, after three months, if we're still having irritation in these, in these liver panels, then we start need to, we need to start thinking about, do we have fibrosis at this point? Do we need more examination? Do we, sometimes we do a specialized ultrasound that can tell us if the liver is getting a little bit stiff and the liver gets stiff when we have too much fibrosis. Um, sometimes you need to get a specialized MRI called MR elastography, which really assesses that stiffness of the liver. And we may even need to take a small sample of the liver and just kind of take a look at under the microscope to assess how much, uh, what is the activity of the fibrosis? What else is going on? Is there something else happening at the same time? Um, and that might be helpful too. 
Okay. So you talked about lifestyle changes, diets, and exercise. Who, um, who should the family kind of build around them as a team to help support them in these changes? Because we don't want to just, we don't want the child to hear the message of you need to go on a diet, right? Um, but we want to build them up for success and, and teach them to have strong and powerful bodies. And um, it's always a little difficult talking about this because you want to make sure that we don't think, we just want to treat this this thing we don't want to create you know this animosity or bad relationship with food because mm -hmm. we don't want that that does not set them up for success mm -hmm. so we usually team up with um, our dietitians who are fantastic at kind of targeting this um, we even team up with endocrinology to make sure that everything else is going smoothly mm -hmm. you know fatty liver usually comes hand in hand with a, a bunch of other disorders and we need to make sure that everything is being taken care of it's not just the liver that's being affected um, but we also sometimes make sure that there's social work that's in involved, um, physical therapy, sometimes certain exercises really help, but certain things are not as helpful. And then physical therapy plays a huge role in that. Um, even psychology, just kind of figuring out what relationship we have for food. Mm -hmm. Some people are stress eaters. I'm a stress eater myself, you know, and, and <laughs> so we kind of have to see like, where can we, what can we do to help and to set you up for success? And it's important to say that really what we're doing is to make sure that the child is healthy and the child has his liver when he's 30, 40, 50, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so is, is this something that, that can be reversible um, or once it's there, um, it's always going to be there a little bit for the rest of their life? Um, yes and no. So okay. if it caught early enough, which is why screening is huge, if caught early enough and we are able to reverse some of these, some of the side effects, we can. And even some fibrosis, the liver is so strong that it can reverse the fibrosis. So that's really, really fantastic news. And this is why I always tell don't give up. You know, even though like your weight didn't change that day, but you look slimmer, you're fitting in your pants better. This is, this is good. Your liver is sensing it. Don't give up. And it's, it's huge. Now, once we get to the cirrhosis part, this is where it gets tricky. This is where we can't really, we can't really change it anymore, but we can still set ourselves up for success by making sure that the rest of our body, our bones, our, our sugar control, everything is fine. So in case we do need a transplant, then we are, our body is ready to accept it. So we still work with the same, with the same modifications. Sometimes we have some medications to help us. Um, sometimes, you know, we can even reverse some of the things with surgery even, um, but should that be the case, if it's specifically cirrhosis, then it, we're talking about transplant right now. Okay. Well, we're near the end of our time. Do you have anything else you want to add, Dr. Hassan? Love your livers. <laughs> Just like you do. Make it your like favorite organ, right? Absolutely. Love your livers. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, we have one question for Dr. Steen. You had mentioned celiac disease as a potential cause of uh, malabsorption in children and, and difficulty gaining weight um, and growing well. The question is specifically about, um, is celiac disease um, more frequent in certain ethnicities or races? Um, and if so, which ones? So... That's a, that's a great question. And celiac disease is common in actually most ethnicities. Um, in, in the United States, we think about one in 200 patients have celiac disease, and we probably have diagnosed the tip of the iceberg, meaning a lot of patients actually are asymptomatic. 
Um, there have been discussions about screening all patients for celiac disease. I think, um, I think it's appropriate to keep a low threshold of screen for celiac disease if there are ever any concerns on the growth chart that a child may not be growing um, and specifically gaining weight, it looks like as well as they should be um, or what's expected. Um, there's some data in European countries such as Switzerland that the, um, probably the prevalence was closer to one in 100 patients. Um, and so we know it's common early around the world um, and, and it's very appropriate to screen for if, if it's ever a concern. Okay, great. Um, Dr. Dr. Steen, do you have anything else that you want to add? I don't think so, but uh, thanks for having us. And um, I'm happy to yep, answer questions in the future when it's needed. Absolutely. Thank you, um, both of you, for joining us. Everyone, have a great day. And remember to keep you and your community safe by social distancing, wearing your mask, and avoiding large social gatherings. See you next time. Have a great day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well.